Welcome back to the Arab Tyrant Manual podcast. We're joined this time by Farida Neburima, a freedom activist from Togo, who will be telling us about Faure Nasimbe Eadima, an African dictator par excellence, who took over from his father in 2005 and has ruled ever since. We also go into valuable lessons from history. Togo was the first country to have an independence referendum in Africa and had an early fall into dictatorship. And of course, what history lesson would be complete without a bit of French colonialism? And what you hear might shock you, it shocked me. So Farida, Togo is a country that is not in the news a lot. In fact, many among our audience might not have heard of the country. But in our conversations, we, we can see clearly that it's something very important is happening here, both in terms of understanding the behavior of dictatorship, but also understanding how resistance kind of looks the same across the world. So why don't you introduce us to yourself and to your country? Thank you for having me on your podcast. I am Farida Bimbanaburema, and I am from Togo. It is a country in West Africa. We are home to about 8 million people. And uh, Togo has been led by, uh, for 51 years by the same family, the Nyasingbe family. Yadima Nyasingbe took over in 1967 as president of Togo after a coup. And uh, when he died in 2005, his son also did a coup and took over. And there has been continuity of that same regime for 51 years in Togo. What was Togo like before the rise of this dictatorship? That is a question that will be very hard to answer because Togo got independent in 1960. This dictator did a first coup in 1963. So barely less than three years after so our independence. Only had three years of it. We yep. have even less than three years. So there's a very short period of time that we experience, you know, peaceful through democracy. And from the stories that our parents and grandparents have been telling, these were the best years of our lives because ever since that the military took over, we have been simply been living in full autocracy and there's no freedom whatsoever. And unfortunately, they are also unable to deliver the economic needs and the expectations of the citizens. As a result, we have like we have poverty on top of dictatorship and the two of them don't work together. Togo used to be a French colony, right? Yes. When was it colonized? Togo was originally a German colony. Togo was not officially a French colony. Togo was a German colony. In 1919, when Germany lost the World War I, it was placed under French and British mandate. The British controlled the western part of the country and the French the eastern part of the country. Now, British Togoland, the, the Cape Coast was uh, obtaining its independence, had the choice of having a referendum with Cape Coast and choose to have their independence with Cape Coast and form an independent country or remain under British control. So, of course, they chose independence and together with Cape Coast, they formed uh, today's day Ghana. Uh, now, Eastern Togoland, which is Togo, remained Togo and they, they were under French mandate. So, they were talking about French West African colonies and Togo. Togo was not officially a French colony. They were kind of like supposed to be our tutor and to see us through independence. So we got our autonomy from them in 1956. And then after that, our leaders insisted on us having our independence. So the push for a referendum, the call for a referendum and the petition, the United Nations for, to force France to hold a referendum. And that was the very first 
independence referendum that was held in Africa and it was in 1958 and the Togolese people voted by over 95% for independence. Eventually that led to our independence in 1960. Can you tell us about how the French reacted to independence and how uh, democracy eventually ended? The French were really upset. Sylvanus Olympio, our first president, called for independence. They really resisted it because they were not ready to depart from Africa. And Togo's independence referendum was the very first to happen in colonial Africa. So I guess and they were afraid that if... Uh, it you was know, spread. Yeah. And it did spread because after that, Guinea also asked for a referendum. Cameroon was asking for one. And Cameroon once turned to a conflict with over 200 people massacred. So the French decided that, okay, you know what? This is becoming out of control. Um, let us just ha- let them have our independence, but let's make sure that we put our guys there. So the few nations like Togo who got theirs first and had national in power, they managed to topple them one by one. And then President Silvano Lim did not uh, rule for very long. No, Silvano Olimpio wanted to remove Togo from the CFA currency. The French created a CFA currency, which is a colonial currency, used to be called French Colonies France, and that the French control 80% of our gold reserve. 65% they say to assure the convertibility of the currency and 50% to avoid inflation. So we have 80% of our gold reserves in French government. We cannot, ha- we don't have any control over our monetary policy. We cannot decide to print more money or to stop printing money. And when the country is in need of money, we have to borrow our own money from the French Reserve with wow. interest on top of it. So Olympio said, no, this is not working for us. So he decided to remove Togo from the colonial currency and create Togo's independence currency two days before the scheduled date of that meeting where they were supposed to sign Togo off the CFA currency. He was assassinated. Wow. So it's really interesting here to see how this, there's this interaction between colonial control and dictatorship. Even though the French were supposed to be, as you mentioned earlier, those were supposed to guide you towards having a mature governance. So question question about the the first dictator. Mm -hmm. Did he have some credentials as someone who fought for the country for uh, to achieve his independence? Absolutely not. He was a cook in the French colonial army. Wow. He was hired with other members of the French colonial army to do the cook. The thing is. When we got our independence, Olympio wanted to use Switzerland's model in Togo. He said Togo will not have an army. So Togo had no army whatsoever. So now these are French colonial soldiers who were fighting for France in Algeria. And some were cooks, some were active soldiers. I mean, they came back and they asked Olympio to insert them. And Olympio is like, first of all, I don't want to build an army for Togo. So I don't have a job for you. Second of all, you were fighting against other nations that were fighting for their independence. So you were fighting against our enemies. So I cannot integrate you in our exactly. army so because... They, they were fighting with the colonizers. Exactly. Yeah. Against those who wanted their independence. And Algeria's col- colonial struggle was the, the worst in Africa with over one million people dead. So Olympia said, I'm sorry, I cannot integrate you. Then Ayadema himself said the French paid them current day $600 to go and do the coup and kill. Sorry, who's Ayadema? Ayadema is, Nyasimbe is the, the one who took over and led the country for 38 years. So they were hired. So he's the first dictator. It was five of them and they were hired and they were given current day $600 and they killed the president and that's how uh, it all happened. So it's really interesting to see how initially after independence, the first president did not want an army. Yeah. 
what I would understand, of course, I want you to comment whether I'm, I'm correct in that assumption or not. But is it was it because he was afraid of coups? It wasn't. It's because he's a pacifist in nature. And for him, it was a philosophical and ideological decision. And he underestimated the threat of uh, the colonial powers. For him, we had we got our independence. We had done the Olivas alone. Uh, it was a very naive thought of him to do that. Yeah. And can you tell us about the rule of Eadema? Eadema was one of the most brutal dictators, not in Africa, but of all times. Eadema ruled mercilessly. When Eadema was president, you know, there was no such thing as freedom. People were controlled at all levels. They went as far as putting spies in schools, in churches, in restaurants, in bars, in taxis, in buses. The, you cannot say Adema's name on the streets. It will get you in trouble. People refer to him with uh, nicknames. They never say his name is public. He, he formed different dance groups and singing groups and people will compose songs and choreographies and come perform for him every single weekend. Civil servants and soldiers were forced to sing and dance for him. Students would parade for him every morning. People will line up from his house to his presidential palace and clap for him when he's going to work. Then they will line up again at 12 when he's going home for a lunch break and at 2 p.m. when he resumes work and at 6 p.m. when he comes back home. And whenever he's traveling, they have to line up from his house all the way to the airport to clap for him. And when he's coming home, they have to line up again to welcome him. The guy was just very fond of himself. It was his images everywhere in the countries, our notebooks, where his images or our pencils was his images. Edema was just like the living God. Man, I'm, I'm, I thought Gaddafi was full of himself. I'm looking across the table at Ahmed's face, who's you know who's who's from Libya, and I can see the transition in his face as you're speaking because he's. <laughs> I think he's recognizing you know uh, <laughs> the Gaddafi example. It seems to me that dictators generally have very weak egos, and they need their egos to be rubbed all the time. Yes, they need people to tell them that they are very powerful, that they are very kind, they are very loving. They need people to comfort them constantly, that they are doing fantastic and that everybody loves them. It's, I, I, I just wonder if they don't have any history, familial or psychological background of not having love and they have this complex <laughs> of inferiority. <laughs> kind of reminds of Trump. And, you know, <laughs> once they come in power, they, they, they really need to be told that they are doing great and they are the best thing that has ever happened, you know, to their people. Yeah. So I have a kind of a related question. When you were actually mentioning all those things that he did and hiring spies, etc. The one question I had was, where was the money coming from? Because in order for him to run such a security state, he has to have some kind of economic control. First of all, Togo has a very deep seaport and our port is one of the deepest on the West African coast. It is a huge uh, source of income for the government. Number two, they have some natural resources like phosphates and uh, that they, they exploit a lot. But one thing that people don't know of is that the Togolese government has been the hub of arm trafficking in arm whole trafficking. Africa. Mm. That's their business. Togo has broken every single embargo in Africa. When there was an embargo against 
and the Savimbis in Angola, he was selling them gun. When there was an embargo against the Charles Taylors in Liberia, he was giving them gun. When there was an embargo on South Africa, he was providing gun. And he's even selling guns to North Korea. So basically, rebel groups, dictatorships, illegitimate government that have issues buying gun outside and military equipment, they go to Togo. And that is where they make most of their money. And was that un- was this under the radar or like how did he get away with it? Like there is a lot of underground deals happening. Many of the military equipment, actually the majority, he either buys them for France or he buys them from Israel. So you know there's internationally these big nations will go to the UN and then they will decide that this country for this violation or violation we are going to impose restrictions for them to purchase guns. But then at the end of the day it's business. And they, they are producing guns and military equipment to sell them. So France wouldn't want its hands stained and be like, they are selling guns to North Korea, for example. Uh, so then they will go to small countries like Togo and then Togo will buy the guns and then ship them over to North Korea. Then it looks like it is Togo that is selling to North Korea. So you mentioned the fact that 80% of the country's economic reserves were held in France mm-hmm. and the desire of Togo to end that arrangement was uh, one of the things that led to the coup. Yeah. Did that end there? It did not end there. Like, it's not just Togo that is in that currency. It's 15 African countries that is in that currency. And um, there is one thing that the French call the Pact Colonial. It's a colonial pact which gives them the exclusivity of our market. Our money, our currency cannot be converted directly to any other currency. We have... In the past, we have to buy the French francs before buying any currency with it. Now we have to buy the euro before buying anything. Basically, every foreign outsourcing, it has to go, they have to be converted. When we convert it to euro, we lose money by doing that before we converting to the foreign country. So the French have an exclusivity of businesses on the country in terms of building infrastructures in terms of importing appliances their cars equipment and even school manuals 98 percent of our school manuals are imported from france and one of the reasons why it's too is because we are french speaking so we are, of course we're not going to buy our books from the united states or spain or russia or scotland we just buy them from france and even if they are written by foreign writers then they have to be translated by french publishing houses before they are sold to they are sold to us. So at the end of the day, Francophone countries are the only countries where you see the majority of the cars are, are French brands. And our government exclusively buy French brand cars only. Our government do not buy Japanese cars or German cars or Italian cars. It's exclusively Peugeot or Renault. And the gas stations are countries are majoritarily total. So it's like they are, they, they, the French economic group where nobody goes there and it's not even competitive to any other European countries. It's them and them alone. Basically, they created a captive market for their own products. absolutely. In my country, for example, growing up, all the appliances we use at home are French. And uh, there's a French brand called Frigidaire and they make home appliances, mostly fridge. Growing up, you always call a fridge Frigidaire. We didn't know that Frigidaire was a brand. Since I was in high school one day, one of my essays, I wrote Frigidaire and the teacher said, no, the name is Refrigerator. And I'm like, no, it's Frigidaire. He said Refrigerator is what the, is the word for fridge in French. Frigidaire is, the, is a brand. But we never knew that because our whole life, 
what we use is Frigidaire. So you go to every house, the fridge is Frigidaire. And it's the same thing for blenders. The only blenders we use is Moulinex, which is a French brand. So in Togo, till day, when you tell somebody you want a blender, in the, the French one for blender, they don't know what you're talking about. You have to say you want Moulinex, and then they know what you're talking about because they have an exclusivity of the market. Their products are the only products we know in that field. So we have no idea how it's even called outside of that. So remind me again, what is the total population of these 15 countries that are under this arrangement? About 300 million. Wow. Yes. That, that's about five times the population size of France yes. itself. Yes. We, are, we consume more French goods than the French themselves. Okay. Yes. And that's basically the only reason then that France is considered the second power of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. It's because of the captive African market. Absolutely. And beyond the markets, they also have exclusive control of the natural resources. The, u- the uranium in Niger is exploited by them. The phosphate in Togo is exploited by them. Uh, they have the bauxite in Guinea. It's exploited by them. The coffee, the cocoa, and the avia in Cote d'Ivoire is exploited by them. The wood, like basically all the natural resources are exclusively theirs and foreign companies are not allowed. At some point, some European companies were bothered that the French hold exclusivity of these markets and they cannot get onto these markets themselves. So the thing I'm thinking listening to this is basically that colonialism never ended. It just changed its name and the rest of the world stopped looking and stopped paying attention. Yeah, the word thing is that all countries in the world are free and independent. Sometimes when some of us say things like this, people will think that, oh, these are conspiracy theories, neocolonialism is dead. But you have to come to Francophone countries to understand that, you know, neocolonialism is still very much alive. I'll give you one very tragic and most painful example to me is the fact that the French government is always talking about saving African countries from terrorist groups, uh, dictatorships, and basically every single new French president that comes to power always starts a new military mission in Africa, uh, whether it's in Central African Republic, in Mali. There's always a conflict coming in and it's always the French. Now, the funny thing is, when they send when they send those missions in Africa, over 85% of the soldiers are outsourced from other Francophone African countries. Now, that's not even the deal. They outsource them because these missions are under the protection of the United Nations. So the United Nations pays for the mission and the French carries the mission. So the French hires soldiers from our countries and pays them the salary they want. Our soldiers have no rights to use their own military equipment. We rent it from France and the UN pays refund France. So it can cost France maybe $20. They are going to charge the United Nations $100. And they can be obtaining $1,000 as salary from soldiers and they'll be paying them like $200. I have no control. We have no right to say no and we have no right to, to refuse to join. So basically our armies are like mercenary armies for them for every operation they want to have in Africa. So you mentioned French presidents and their dealings with Francophone Africa. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. Robert Bourguie is a very prominent French politician, lawyer, and uh, he's very close to many French presidents in the past. He helped many become presidents. He said that he himself collected in cash millions of euros from African dictators to politicians in France, especially the president, President Chirac, Giscard d'Estaing, Pompidou, Mitterrand. He collected them himself. He was the one they sent 
and he collected them in cash. And these were massive money, campaign money they collect from them. You know, the funny thing is that people don't know that like when the French president, their campaigns are coming close, they send guys to African dictators and they tell them we need money to campaigns. And there must not be there must be no trace of that. So of course they collect the money in cash and they take private jets and they bring them. The thing is, if you're an African president and you refuse to give the money, you'll be toppled. And former president of Cote d'Ivoire, Laurent Babo, himself said that he donated millions of euros to the president of France, Jacques Chirac, because it was basically a blackmail. You don't you don't have the right to say no because it has the power to bring you down. And that is something that French politicians have been doing for a very long time. So the big scandal right now is the revelation that Gaddafi financed Sarkozy's mm-hmm. presidential campaign mm-hmm. somewhere in the region of 50 million euros. But this isn't even remotely new. It's yeah. just that we haven't been paying attention. That's true. It has been happening for a very long time. And it has been happening even more in French colonies than anywhere. And this has been happening since the times of the goal. Just that our presidents are very scared, so they don't come out and say it. Laurent Bagot has been disgraced after the French still managed to talk for him anyway because he's not obedient enough and he's at the ICC. So he made these revelations. But the other ones that are in power, they are afraid to say anything. In Togo, there was a scandal about Manuel Valls, who was uh, the prime minister under the former president, uh, François Hollande, and was running for the primaries. Manuel Vance is said to have come to Togo and collected 8 million euros for his primaries campaign. He still lost, though. But when you collect 8 million euros just for the campaigns in the primaries, you don't want to imagine how much they they collect for the campaign itself during the actual elections. So Sarkozy is actually being charged with corruption for the Gaddafi money transfers, and he's facing 10 years in prison. Have any of the others been held accountable? Never. Sarkozy is the very first that has been held accountable. And uh, um, Vincent Bolloré, who is a friend of Sarkozy, a French business mogul, one of the richest men on earth, who has also been indicted a few weeks ago over corruption allegations in Togo and Guinea. He has been using his company resources to temper with elections in those countries. And in turn, they give him full control of our transportation, logistic and entertainment businesses. So they gave him a control of our port for 30 years. And he has aided the dictator during the elections, the past election in 2015. And he has been indicted as well. So I, I have a question, but I want to lead to it with another question. Can you give us a, a feel about how wealthy in natural resources this region is? Not just Togo, but the 15 countries that are under this arrangement with their ex-colonial masters. I just want to give you an idea by giving you for what I know for each one of them. Togo, for example, has the second largest deposit of phosphate after Morocco. Cote d'Ivoire, at some point, was the very first, is the very first producer of cocoa in the world. Cameroon has, and Gabon have the largest forests in Africa and the number one producers of wood in the world. Guinea has the largest deposit of bauxite in Africa. Niger has the largest deposit of uranium, not just in Africa, but in the world. Chad, Congo, some of the largest deposits of oil in Africa. So these are very, very rich countries in terms of natural resources. And what's, what's, uh, what's the per capita income like? I will tell you that for Togo, the annual capita is about $400. Annual? Annual. Wow. Yes. 
Togo's GDP, for example, right now is 4.4 billion. This is 2018. Years ago, it was way less than that. When Iyadema died in 2005, his wealth was estimated at $5 billion. So his wealth is more than the GDP yeah, of the country. than the GDP of the country. <laughs> way more than the GDP of the country. And it's not the only one. So we have leaders that they themselves are wealthier than all of us put together. So they can buy us from their pockets. They can just be like, that country, you know what, I'm buying it. I'm buying the country, the resources and the people in it because I can afford it. That's how wealthy they are. So the reason why I wanted to lead with this is because because I wanted to get to this question. Having this arrangement with France seems to be incredibly profitable for France. Do the French still tell you that you should be grateful for French colonialism? They do. The worst part of it is that they will tell you that, you know, they are actually helping and things would have been much worse if they were not there to help. And they constantly remind us that it is thanks to them that we are now a civilized nation. And the president of France, Macron, recently said that Africa has a civilizational problem. And that is an insult. Because and he's not the first to say that. No, he's not the first to say that. Sarkozy, before him, came to Senegal, an African country, and said that the African man has not entered history yet that the African man only can be good at repetitive things. We don't have creative instincts. And that is why we are struggling to come out of poverty. I mean, as as you're saying this right now, my blood is boiling. <laughs> I mean, this seems to be so blatantly racist that is. why isn't this more reported? Like like the media goes crazy right now whenever, whenever Trump tweets. Say something, yes. But it seems that this is a, a heritage of this kind of racism yeah well first of all you have we're on a planet of 7 billion people and mm-hmm. and you have like 6.5 billion that don't speak french so they don't know what is said or not said right so so basically there's this little. there's this french french speaking public sphere which is yes. not accessible to the rest of us absolutely that's why when something happens even in countries like togo nobody knows like i'll give you one example People of Togo, when they started protesting and demanding Fonya Simbe to step down since August last year, we managed to get 1 million people on the streets in 14 different cities. And Togo is a country of 8 million people. When you go to Togo at a time, like the crowd was on several kilometers, but it was not covered in major foreign news. But as soon as Iran started, day one, day two, day three was all over the news. When Iran started what? The main uprising started in Iran. It was all over the news. Mm. And they were asking the Iranian government to not crack down on the protesters, to respect freedom of association. But in Togo, we were doing that for months. And we still didn't make it to the news. And the the fact that we are French-speaking is the number one contribution to that. The word doesn't get out. Like, people cannot report or get angry over something they don't even know happened. And that is the situation. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have covered a lot of territory when it comes to historical context. Mm. And I'm sure that our audience are really uh, loving these kind of details because they're more, they're so poignant and so in your face about this symbiotic relationship between dictatorship and, and colonialism, especially the, the country that is supposed to be the first liberal democracy in history, which is France. So I guess maybe I want to get a little comment from you about, let's say a summary, Mm. how 
this relationship or how this symbiotic relationship, it's very clear how it benefited the French. Mm-hmm. How did it benefit the dictators? First of all, for them to be able to stay in power, they use fear. And for that, they use the army. Our army is exclusively trained in France by France. And they get their military equipment at the time mostly by from France. And the army knows that they can get away with everything for as long as they are loyal to France. In 2005, Fanny Adema died and the army put his son in power. And the Togolese people rose against it. They massacred over 1,000. And 1,000 people were massacred within three weeks. And you don't get on international news. Yes, 2005. 2005. Until then, no one has been held accountable. And there have been other instances where Togolese people try to rise against this government. They just get killed. So the army feels very comfortable. And in fact, they have this very bold way of dealing with the people. We have military officials, militaries, uh, ministers who come on TV and say things like, you know what, if you dare protest, you will see what we will do to you. We are going to crush you and nothing is going to happen because nothing has ever happened. So there's a lot of impunity and the impunity falls them. And why is there an impunity? It's because internationally, when the uprising started in Togo, I started touring African countries to ask for help. I met with officials in many African countries and I said, the situation in Togo is deteriorating. We are having displaced people, refugees. People are fleeing. The country is falling into chaos. Do something. In every single African country I went to, they asked me this question. What is France saying in all of this? And I'm like, we are African countries. We are independent. Why does France have to say anything? They're like, well, you know, Togo is really a French territory. And these are even African countries that were not French speaking. I even met a head of state who said, till France says something, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can say. And it seems to me that in the international community in these cases only pays attention yes. when there's a refugee crisis Absolutely. or when there's a terrorism crisis. Yes. So you mentioned the security state, the police state, the surveillance mm-hmm. systems that were all per- pervasive that were built by Eadema, mm-hmm. they were built, I'm guessing, with foreign expertise? Yes. You know, there have been uh, Israeli experts that have been, that built their surveillance system, that built their um, military system. Even our president hires Israeli uh, security forces for his personal security. He doesn't depend on Togolese army for his personal security because he's afraid they can topple them topple him. His father had a very good relationship with Israel for many years and uh, they buy many of their military equipment from them and uh, the relationship continues. Farida, you have spent some time in Ghana, Mm. which is, I believe, next door to Togo, right? Mm. And Ghana seems to be this exceptional country because it's a West African country, which is actually counted as a democracy. Mm. What does this mean? And is this a window of opportunity or is it a threat? Both, I will say. The good thing about Ghana, the lucky thing about them is that they are an English-speaking country from a British colony, surrounded by French colonies. So they live in their own world. Like, you cross the border, you go to Ghana, they have no clue what's happening in Togo. Their news stations don't ever say anything in Togo. We did a press conference there, and the questions that 
the journalists were asking were so outdated, like the politicians were asking about have been dead for young now, meaning they just don't have any information about what's happening next door because we speak French, they speak English. That's so so information does not cross. So they have, they really, really don't know. Like, they just have no idea what's happening. And they're um, next door. They're, they're literally next door. next door. Like, next door. And that's the same thing for all their neighbors. All their neighbors are francophone. Like now, Nigeria, which is two countries away from Ghana, the Ghanaians know everything happening in Nigeria. Daily basis, they consume Nigerian news and vice versa. To the point where there are some, like, some Ghanaians actually, who actually think that Nigeria is a next door neighbor. Because I met a Ghanaian. And he was fighting me and he was like, you know, after Nigeria, you have Togo, right? I'm like, no, Togo is your next door neighbor. And then after Togo, you have been. And then Nigeria only comes in third position. He's like, no, Nigeria is our neighbor. I'm like, no, Nigeria is not your neighbor. <laughs> because of the, lang- the language difference. Because of the language been- difference. Yeah. And this is what has protected Ghana politics. Otherwise, it would have been very easy for them to just obtain support from dictators from all over the countries. Um, because when you look at when Blaise Kampari was in power, he and Yadema basically were not just the puppets in the region, but they were the dictators that sponsored coups and military occupations in many other Francophone countries, especially, like, especially when they are Francophones. So the good thing for Ghana is West African Francophone politics does not influence them at all. They don't follow, they don't, they don't interact, they don't deal with us, they just live in their, in their own world. Now, the other thing too is that we take inspiration from them. We are like, hey, Ghana is doing great. We want to be like Ghana too. And we want Ghana should be, Ghana is a model. So we aspire to have something like that in our country too. And there is a lot of inspiration that the people are, are taking from there. We are like, Ghana has like four living former presidents. Togo has none. Like the only former presidents we have are dead. Like, like all of them just they, die. They rule until they yes, die. Yes. So yeah. So it seems to me that the important thing is that Ghana is a West African country, which mm-hmm. is a democracy, and it's classified mm-hmm. as free and fair. Mm-hmm. So this disproves the idea that many people insist on. There's some kind of cultural incompatibility between mm-hmm. Africans and democracy, mm-hmm. and Africa is not able to have free democracies. Africa is able to have free democracies. Ghana has proved this. Other countries have proved it. Botswana is a democracy. They are doing very good. The thing is that Africa is not being allowed to have democracies. Um, Africans are not being supported to obtain the democracies because they are dictators that are friends with other foreign nations. And these foreign nations... Although they say that we promote democracy, we are human rights nations, their interest comes first. So they are comfortable with some dictators staying in power as long as they are benefiting from it in terms of economic control of this country. So they will not trade that. Like, okay, what is it going to do to France for Togo to become democratic? Nothing. So they will not lose their business interests in the name of 8 million people becoming democratic. So they, are prior- they have priorities. And uh, in these priorities, power, prosperity comes before morals and principles. You're an activist and you're part of the struggle to basically bring democracy to Togo. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about your work and your campaigns? Yes, I founded some friends years ago, the Farmers Go Movement. For is the name of the current president, the son of Eadema Simbe. 
I founded the movement in 2011 because I realized that the only way for us to end dictatorship is to have a revolution. So I started studying peaceful revolution and nonviolent revolution. And from that moment, we started preaching for revolution, putting in place, uh, developing strategies, developing tactics and methods to reach those goals and strategies. And we have been advancing pretty well. Some people will think that, well, if you're doing well, why is the regime still in power? But the regime has never been this weak in its existence. And we, we are the one who did that. We did that by, first of all, raising awareness on the abuse. Second of all, empowering the citizen. When Edma was president, people couldn't say his name. When his son became president, they were like gods. We call them by their first names. We're like, no, this guy, he's not his excellency. He's a killer. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He doesn't des deserve uh, our respect. He doesn't deserve our prayers. We must not be afraid of them. They must be afraid of us. And I tell people, dictators, the feed on our fear. So I will not empower them by being afraid of them. We have to stop fearing them and we have to make them fear us. So we use our strategies and we try to weaken the regime. We expose their scandals. We show their vulnerabilities to people, to, for people to make them understand, for people to understand that they are just as humans as us. And even worse, they are very vulnerable people. They are very weak people. They have no moral values whatsoever. And they have psychological issues, real issues with themselves. That's why they, they love portraying themselves in a certain way. But at the end of the day, they are human beings. So we demystify the regime. We organize people. We empower citizens to get to a point where people are now comfortable saying farmers go. When we founded the farmers go movement, people couldn't say farmers go. They were like, that's, that will get you in jail. Do you know you can get killed? Do you know you can get hurt? And we said, yes, we know all of that. And that is why we are doing it. We know we can get killed. We know we can get hurt. But it's because we live in a country where having an opinion can get you killed that we are fighting against that. So empowering citizens, making them understand that they are oppressed. They know that, but there's something they can do with their oppression. And they must not give up no matter what the cost. And they must give their all for us to secure freedom was the most difficult part of it. And we reach that part now. And the people are rising. And there are going to be trials and fails, but I'm extremely confident looking at the evolution of things that we are winning this. The dictator is very weak right now. Now he's trying for the first time in their existence to win people's love. They never try to win our love. In never in our history, the president visited hospitals to see patients. Now they are doing that. Never in our history did he go and commission fountains to give people water, clean water. He never did that. Now he's doing that. He even went as far as going to the market and buy bread. Never in our history did he stop anywhere to buy something. They are trying to win our love, but it's too late. Because what they won from us in the past was our fear. And with that, they rule. But now that they know they don't have that anymore, they are trying something else. But unfortunately, they have hurt the people way too long to get that love now. So the Farmers Girl Movement has been rallying support, organizing people. And one other aspect of what we do is the internationalization of the crisis in Togo. Because we are so small as a nation, there's not a lot of coverage of what is happening in Togo. So we try to get the news out, try to, to, to have other media internationally cover the stories in Togo. 
reach out to foreign governments. We do a lot of lobbying activities with foreign governments here and there to ask them to take action against Togo, to impose sanctions on Togo. We reach out to foreign institutions as well. So this is the kind of work that we have been doing, empowering citizens to stand for themselves, demystifying the regime and proving that they are dictators and dictators are nothing, but they themselves are very big cowards and internationalizing the struggle for people to know that something is happening in Togo and they need to support the people. And their response to this has basically been to try and make themselves as sympathetic as possible, you said, to, because they're afraid and they see that the people are against them. So they're yes. trying to yes. tell people that reforms are happening, mm-hmm. buy the people off, And it's all stuff that is so familiar to me uh, as someone who's watched the Arab world and seen Mm -hmm. what Arab leaders have done, especially in 2011, Mm -hmm. when the Arab Spring went through country after country. Mm -hmm. And everyone almost went through a playbook, which Mm -hmm. they shared, and they went through the same steps. Um, As as soon as protests reached their country, they would Mm -hmm. go through the steps of saying, firstly, our country is not like other countries. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, there's going to be chaos. And then they would offer pay increases. So what we're going to do is read out items from the original Arab tyrant manual mm-hmm. and you can tell us whether you've seen them before in mm-hmm. Togo. Okay. So the standard response mm-hmm. manual for Arab tyrants in response to revolution. The first item we've got on the list is offer money like pay increases, bonuses, etc. to police officers and public servants. They've done that, not to public servants, like actually they the, the, the gave pay increase to militaries and police officers to the detriment of civil servants and now they had no money left to pay the civil servants and the civil servants went on strike. Yeah. Another thing on the canonical Arab Tarant manual, which actually, which actually uh, showing in, in several items, is mm. blaming the media. Mm-hmm. Have they done that? Definitely. They blame the media, they shut down some media houses, uh, they accuse them of publishing false information, instigating people to violence, dramatizing the situation, making it look worse than it actually is. Yeah. How about blaming it on foreign agendas? Yes, definitely. They say that the opposition is financed by Qatar. And, uh, why, why Qatar? It seems like an odd country to pick. You know, uh, the thing is, because they wanted to take advantage of world politics. So everything was timed in a certain way. When the study for Jerusalem thing came, Togo was the only African country that voted in favor of uh, the United States and Israel. And because of the geostrategic issue with Qatar, they were like, okay, uh, what Muslim country can we say these Islamists are backed for? So they're like, okay, Qatar will be good <laughs> because Americans, they don't like Qatar and we want America support at this moment. So they decided to make it Qatar. And the funny thing is, is when they said Qatar, that majority of Togolese people even heard that there's a country in the world called Qatar. <laughs> people have no clue <laughs> where Qatar is. And, you know, you know, one of the leaders of the position, opposition parties who started this whole thing, is a Muslim. And Togo is a minority Muslim country. There's only 20% Muslim. And then he said that he has jihadist agenda. And, uh, and, and this person is actually a democracy, a pro-democracy politician. Right? He's a lawyer. He's a human rights lawyer. His whole life, that's what he has been doing. And this is blatantly... And he has never <laughs> even been to the Middle East in his life. Um, they said he's a jihadist and he's financed by Qatar to bring down Israeli interests in Togo. I don't even know what those interests are because Togo is really nothing that could be of interest. Well, you mentioned that Israel actually provides you know, security. Yes, but we are not that powerful to the point where 
Qatar will waste its money to come mm-hmm. and topple a dictatorship in a country as small as Togo. We only have 20% Muslims anyway. That's the contradiction. Our country is so weak that it's vulnerable to so many foreign conspiracies. Oh. But at the same time, it's so strong and so important that everybody wants to come. <laughs> well, you you covered your answer already covered the next item on the Arab Tariq Manual okay. canonical list, which is blame it on the Islamists. Oh, yes, definitely. So even though you don't really have a lot of Muslims, you still, you know, this narrative of war on terror, etc. They, they arrested Muslim imams and put them in prison, saying that they have been preaching against the president. So this one is um, a very important item on the Arab Tariq Manual because it's been used by everyone from Bil Ali mm-hmm. to Gaddafi to Mubarak mm-hmm. and beyond. Ignore events completely and then realize late how serious things really are and give a midnight speech to the nation. When the protest started in Togo for two months, they shut down the internet. They were beating people, brutalizing people. From two months, from late August all the way to October, the president never ever addressed the nation on what was happening in Togo. The first time he insinuated something was happening in Togo was when he organized the very first congress of his political party ever since he was president. He was president and he never organized a party congress. But then all of a sudden uprising started, he organized a party congress. And he shows up and he said, people have found an ally in technology to depict a simple guy like me as a dictator. Simple guy. Yes, a simple guy that drives 2 million euro cars, that buy private jets, you know, a very simple life that we all want. His wealth is more than the GDP of the country. Yes, but then the thing is, after that, he did an interview with Jeune Afrique, which is a foreign African media, propaganda media for dictators. And that's where he discussed what was happening in the country. He addressed it, but he ignored it till then. And from that interview till day, he has never said a word about the uprising. He's just acting like if nothing is happening, nothing is happening. So did they also warn of tribalism and that the country will explode into an orgy of violence if he ever leaves and that he's the only one who is guaranteeing stability and security? He's always saying that he's supported by the northerners because their ethnic group is a northern ethnic group. And the army, according to minorityrights.org, is made of 75% from people from their own village. But that's the official number. It's actually worse than that. Always tell their people that if they leave, there's going to be a genocide and these uh, people who don't belong to their tribal groups will come and kill them all. And they always play on that. Burn down your own police stations and blame it on the protesters? Yes. That was one of the very, very first things that they did. Actually, I didn't realize that was a strategy that was very known and everywhere till you mentioned it because that was the very first thing that they did. All institutions they could have burnt they burned down the police station, like, and then they blame it on the protesters. The funny thing is, the fire started at the police stations, and they arrested those who they blame for the fire before the fire even started. <laughs> you know, when you look at the time, like a fire started around 10 p.m., these people were arrested around 6 p.m., but the next morning on the news, they said they arrested people who have burned down the police station. When things get bad, shut down mobile networks and social media. When they, they get did. really bad, shut down the internet. They actually started by starting on internet completely. Then they shut down test messaging. And then they brought back internet. They realized that, okay, shutting down the whole internet is not needed. They shut down WhatsApp because that's the what people use to communicate the most. So that that is basically what they have been doing. Then they increase data costs. 
because they're like poor people. And if it's expensive, they wouldn't be afraid. They wouldn't be able to afford it anymore. <laughs> yes. So promise radical change and say that this regime that remained static for over forty years can reform in like a few weeks. In fact, when people started protesting, demanding that he goes, all of a sudden, the same week, they organized an extraordinary parliamentary session. They put together a new constitution and they submitted it for a referendum. People said they don't want the referendum. For the first time, they brought term limits themselves. They're like, no, we'll give you term limits. But on one exception, the term limit is not going to apply to the current or past terms of the president. It's going to reset the clock to zero starting 2020. Mm -hmm. And we are like, we still don't want your term limits. Say that only a tiny percentage of the people are protesting and the majority are with me and cite the latest election results. They weren't even as far as finding international people to back that off. Uh, when the protests, there was a first protest in Togo on August 19 when this whole thing started. And then we did a press conference in Ghana to basically encourage Ghanaian journalists to cover what is going to happen in Togo. Because we were telling them that there was a protest a few weeks ago that was massacred. We are mobilizing the country for a massive protests coming. They should stay tuned because we want them to cover it. And uh, the Ghanaians interviewed director of the United Nations West Africa Bureau, Ibn Shambas, who is very close to our dictator. And then he came on radio and he said, nothing is happening in Togo. It is just a small group of agitators that are giving the impression that the country is exploding. But it has been to Togo a couple of days ago and the country is very quiet and there should, there should be nothing to worry about. Shambas made a statement on Monday. The following Wednesday, there were 700,000 Togolese people on the streets. Wow. Then he took a plane and he came and he said he wanted to mediate the conflict. And we said, we are not going to see you because you are a small group of agitators. And agitators don't want to have a conversation with you. You take your plane and you go back. <laughs> and we rejected his mediation. Complain on behalf of average citizens that normal, normal life is being held up due to the protest and yeah. talk about the economy. In fact, they banned the protest on weekdays. They say we can protest both on Saturdays and Sundays only at the beach. Because <laughs> <laughs> the beach party. <laughs> yeah. Because we are clogging the street, we are blocking circulation, we are impacting economy, businesses can't carry anymore, and that is very detrimental to the nation. So we can only protest on weekends and at the beach. Say you were going to retire soon anyway or relinquish power in the next election, so there's no need to protest. Definitely anymore. not. He made it known that his father told him not to ever leave power, so he <laughs> is not going to retire anytime soon. Have military parades? Oh, yes, they do. To show off, he even had a, for the first time, he organized not only military parade, but he gathered many high-ranking army officials and they took a family picture, massive picture with soldiers all over him, and he was in the front. Get a shameless liar and make him Minister of Information or Head of State TV? He already has them. <laughs> uh, like, whenever you commit a massacre, say that you have no idea how it happened yes. and how they died because you haven't used force yet. Absolutely. Say that the protesters were pure of heart, they were just young kids, but they were tricked by foreign agendas. Definitely. Beyond that, they hired militias to do the dirty job. And one of the, the worst parts was that when they hired militias, we had videos they did the first repression themselves. The international community condemned how police was brutalizing people. So this time they hired militias. But people say that they're actually soldiers in civil uniforms. And they, these militias, they had guns, AK-47s, machetes, and they were brutalizing people. The police car was parked. Police officers just stand on the car, leaned on the car, and was watching the militias brutalizing people and it was on video 
they didn't bother, they didn't even move. They allowed the militia to, to beat the people to the point where they died. They didn't even move. Then the same night, the minister of security came and said that he's very grateful about these young people who have decided to save the nation. Mm-hmm. And they are groups, they are not militias as the opposition is referring to them. They are auto-defense groups who want to bring back peace and stability in the country and who have decided to go after these dogs that are creating chaos by by instigating violence on the streets. They have decided to take the things in their own manner because they are very patriotic, auto-defense groups. So we have an army, we have a police, and some citizens can just wake up and, and brutalize their own countrymen and call themselves auto-defense groups. You know. in, in Egypt, they called them the honorable citizens. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why we say, you know, the Arab time, the Arab in Arab time manual is only for flavor. It's kind of yeah. like the French in French fries or the Belgian and Belgian yes. waffles. It's really every tyrant's manual. Yes. I'll take one more because this can, this can actually take a very Forever. long time. But call your favorite celebrity, a singer, dancer, soccer player, etc. Ask them to talk on TV for your support. Yes, and in Togo, they had the soccer player Emmanuel Adebayo do that. And Adebayo, that was the worst mistake of his life. He went on international news and he said that he doesn't even know what the Togolese people are protesting about. And he had the God to call us jobless. He said, instead of these young people to go and find jobs to make their lives better, they are wasting their time on the street saying the president should go. How does the president go is going to solve their problem? The problem is that they are lazy and they don't want to work. And we're like, really? We are lazy and we don't want to work. And it's because of our laziness that you had demand yourself. Your parents could not afford to pay your school fees and you were an illiterate and you were playing soccer at the beach till a white man rescued you, took you to France and put you in a sports club. It's because of our laziness that there are thousands of children like you in Togo who cannot afford school fees, who cannot afford food, who cannot afford housing. It's because we are lazy that we don't have jobs or it's because we have a dictatorship that will not allow us to work. We have graduate students that are jobless who want to do something with their lives. So people blasted Emmanuel Adebayo for that. But he's still the president friend. After that, he went to the presidential palace, took pictures with him and said the president has great plans for the nation and we should support him. Yeah, that, was quite, that was quite a put down for either. I've got to take one more just to show how universal this is because this is an item which sounds like it's only suited for Arab countries yeah. or countries in the Muslim world. Use religion. Call your state mufti and promise him a pay rise for for a declaration in support of your government. Yes. In Togo, they went beyond the religion. Traditional leaders, they gathered them all. They distributed them massive amount of money. And in Togo, they organized what they call Togo purification. And they took one week off. The whole nation was off for one week to purify the nations. They called religious clerics, Muslim clerics, Christian clerics, traditional pagan chiefs, and then they did prayers. They did Islamic prayers. They did Christian prayers at different Christian de- denominations. They went to the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, the Baptist Church. It was a whole week. And then the enemies also slaughtered animals in different communities. And they say that they were praying for the forgiveness of the people that the militaries have killed for all these 50 years. And after that, they declared that the country is now purified and reconciled because the dead people have forgiven them. And those of us, the living, who have not forgiven them, we have the enemies of progress and peace. I think we'll have to maybe ask you the last question, which yeah. is, what comes now? I mean, what do you see in your future for your, for your country and also for yourself? Yeah, I know that very, very soon we are going to defeat this dictator. I have been monitoring Togo for 
a decades now monitoring the opposition monitoring the people the citizens the different groups of people the media and togo has changed you know the the, the dictatorship is still there but togo has really changed it takes a while for people to understand that there's something wrong with their relationship with their government then once they realize that there is something wrong for a long time they think like there's nothing i can do about it they're very defeatist and skeptical and fatalist and then you have to convince them that something can be done but then once they realize that there's something that can be done about it you can't take it back from them it's like a baby like newborns they wonder how do these people stand how do they walk like that like, how do they do that can i even also do that one day uh, then at some point they realize that they can use their legs too and they try and they fall and they try and they fall but once they know how to run how to walk they don't walk anymore they start running you try to whatever thing they do they just run and it's same for the people once they know that they have some freedom i was considered for many years as the most radical togolese the fearless togolese the only person in togo that is able to tell the government to their face that they are killers, they are stupid, they are foolish, they are full of themselves, and we are going to deal with them. And I was the only one that openly tell ministers that we are coming after you, and when we get you, you are so going to deal with you. And people are like, how how can you be this bold? But now I see Togolese people doing like a hundred times what I'm capable of saying. And I'm like, whoa, damn, you guys are really powerful. <laughs> like, I, And I am very proud of that. I am very proud we are able to break that ice. And I know that now that the Togolese people got that little bit of freedom, we can't take it away from them. It's only going to get better and better and better. And eventually the dictatorship is going to fall. So what's next is that they are going to fall. How soon? When I say very soon, some Togolese people are like, how can you be sure? But for me, one year, two years is very soon. For some people, some people, very soon means two months or one month or one week. But I, I always tell my people that it took us so long, decades, to convince you, the people of Togo, that you need to stand against this dictatorship. And we who have been telling you this right from the beginning, we have been very patient with you. So it's now your time to be patient with the revolution. As long as we continue maintaining the pressure and we refuse to concede, to compromise at any level, we refuse to accept anything less than what we deserve, which is full freedom and democracy, they are going to fall because they have no other option. We are the one feeding them. And the moment we stop the feeding, they'll die. Thank you, Farida, for this really fascinating interview. I think everyone who, who will listen to it will have learned something. Thank you. And I think... It's important for myself and Iyad to confess our own previous ignorance when it comes to Togo and yeah. uh, most of West Africa. I would like to thank you for trying to bring the spotlight on Togo and trying to help us have a voice so that our voice can go very far. I remember one day I was doing a live on Facebook with my people and somebody somebody asked a question, why are you wasting your time going everywhere talking about togo why are you always screaming everything is wrong in togo and i said and why are you so angry and i said because there's eight million of us and i have to carry all the eight millions of you anger and it's exhausting me if all of us were screaming or were just speaking just a little our voice would resonate 
But because I'm all alone, I have to yell so that the world can know that, hey, there's a small country here, that something is happening. So I need your help to start speaking for yourself so that I will save my breath and speak a little more normally. But till the most of you are doing it, I will keep banging on every knob and making noise everywhere so that people know that something is happening in Togo. And you guys are amplifying us. And by doing this, you're only helping us move towards our freedom. Every human being that gets to know that Togo is a dictatorship and the people of Togo want freedom is one step closer for us to reach that freedom. So thank you very much for helping us get close to that freedom. Well, thank you, Farida. This was a very inspirational uh, interview for me. So you are absolutely an inspiration. And this interview actually has been an incredible validation for the theory behind the Arab Tyrant Manual, which is that dictatorships act the same all across the world mm -hmm. and resistance also has to has to adopt similar narratives Absolutely. across the world Absolutely There you go that's the dictatorship of Togo One thing that amazes me is how much I've learned about other countries listening to that not only countries cynically propping up the dictatorship for profit like France and Israel, but the behavioural patterns that are so generalizable from Faure to Gaddafi, CC, MBS, and even Trump and beyond. It really is like they all went to the same school together, or, I don't know, like Farida said, they grew up uh, lacking in love and ended up with similarly weak egos. They share the same complexes, the same need for validation and approval, the same insecurities. It really is a manual for all tyrants. And by the way, Farida is normally one of the most insightful commentators on authoritarianism in general, and the struggle against it in Africa specifically. And her faith in her people and their struggle is truly inspiring. Make sure to follow her on Twitter, at Farida underscore N. You'll find the link in the description of the podcast. Some announcements. Firstly, we're hiring. We're looking for an editor and a writer for the Arab Tyrant Manual. Uh, we're looking for a writer for the Jamal Khashoggi Memorial Project that we're launching soon, and we need your support. The best way to do that, of course, is to go to our Patreon and make a regular donation to enable us to keep going and to expand. Uh, the link is in the description of the podcast. If you can't do that, then your support is still appreciated. Please do share the podcast, tweet it, or post it online, or message or email it to someone who you think should listen. Thanks to our editors, Sana Sekkari and Khulud Ahtewash, and to the Oslo Freedom Forum for hosting this discussion. The Arab Tyrant Manual is a project of Kawekibi Foundation. Yeah.